Hello, this is Russell Moore, and this is a special episode of Signposts. We're turning this one around really, really quickly because, as you know, this is where we come together to have conversations about a whole range of uh, issues and topics. And today I wanted to talk about uh, the Supreme Court decision that was handed down uh, this week. If you're listening to this, probably uh, would have been a few days ago unless you're listening sometime off into the future. And if you are, I hope that 2020 is looking much better than it is in June. Uh, so so uh, we can hope that uh, for you wherever, whenever you're listening to this. Uh, but today, I wanted to talk to my friend David French, who is one of the country's most renowned uh, legal thinkers, scholars, uh, writers. Uh, he is senior editor at The Dispatch, uh, which is uh, an amazing, I don't know what you would call it, News service slash think tank slash it's a it's a new thing, uh, David. I guess it's kind of uh, the best thing I can come up with is uh, Jean Ralphio's uh, description of uh, his company as a uh, a multimedia multinational media conglomerate. Is that would would that be a fair? <laughs> <description>? Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> although we're not nearly as cool as Jean Ralphio, uh, but. <laughs> Entertainment 720. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So we're a uh, conservative media company that emphasizes we have podcasts, we have newsletters, we have website, and our emphasis on is on fact based journalism and analysis. So um, and we try to shun clickbait and we try to take a press a pause on the news cycle and think things through carefully um, and avoid sort of the outrage cycle as much as we possibly can. And that is definitely a unique niche. I'm a, I think, a founding <laughs> <Sadly>. subscriber <laughs> to the Dispatch and love it, and and uh, and really appreciate the newsletters that come out uh, consistently from the Dispatch, including and especially uh, David's. Uh, David, uh, what I'd like to talk about today is usually when a Supreme Court decision comes down, if it's if it's significant enough that it makes the news. Uh, one of the things that I always find myself doing is either saying to people, hey, this is more significant than you think it is, or saying to people, hey, calm down. This isn't as big as you as you think it is. And so this week, after the Bostock decision was handed down uh, the other day, making the ruling that uh, sex in the Civil Rights Act will now apply to sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, A lot of people were really confused about, is this a big deal? Is this not a big deal? What What do we think about this? And I immediately thought about you, even before I read your piece, because uh, you and I were talking about this a long time ago. We, we both live in the same place and we hang out a lot and we were talking somewhere about this case and you predicted this exact scenario, almost almost exactly, and then you put out your analysis on this. Before we, we talk about your analysis, uh, can you just explain from your perspective exactly what this decision did? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, if you read, if you knew Justice Gorsuch's um, jurisprudence. And if you read the oral argument in the case or, or listened to it, you're pretty confident this was going to occur. And so the, the background is that the Title VII and Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits discrimination on uh, in, in employment on the basis of, among other things, a race, a religion, and sex. And so 
it's very cleverly done by the plaintiffs in this case, is basically went in to the Supreme Court and they, they aimed, as I read it, their entire argument at Justice Gorsuch. And they said that the word sex is not being, we're not asking you to redefine the word sex. Uh, sex means biology, uh, biological sex. Uh, it doesn't mean gender identity. It just means biological sex. But you cannot commit an act of sexual orientation discrimination or gender identity discrimination without treating people of different sexes differently. So that was the heart of the argument. That was the heart of the case, was the whole concept of, is it possible to discriminate against a person of a different sexual orientation or gender identity without also discriminating against them on the basis of sex? And that that was the argument in the case. And and Justice Gorsuch, and, and along with five other justices, says, no, you cannot discriminate against someone on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity without also discriminating on the basis of sex. And Justice Alito and two other justices said, that's wrong. It's a, it's a, it's a different category of discrimination entirely. And that's what the whole case boiled down to, ultimately. It was not a Really interestingly, unlike other arguments and cases that we've seen in years past where it seemed like a policy argument was being made throughout the oral argument, this was an argument about what do words mean and how do you apply what those words mean in various real world scenarios. And as I read it, as I read that oral argument, I was thinking, oh my goodness, Justice Gorsuch, this is, they're singing Justice Gorsuch's song here. Mm-hmm. Well, help people to understand what his thinking particularly is, because there are a lot of people who are saying, if you were to get into a time machine and go back to 1964 and talk to Mike Mansfield or to uh, Everett Dirksen or anybody else who's voting on the 1964 Civil Rights Act on Title VII, and you said, this is going to apply to gender identity and explained the contemporary transgender movement, no one would have known what you were talking about. And so they're saying, so how can you say that that's in the law? Right. Well, you know, this gets to what it means to be a textualist. Okay. So what was intended by a law is irrelevant to what the law says. Uh, A lot of the conservative jurisprudential project over these last decades has been to say, no, we don't need to be trying to commit an act of psychology when when engaging in jurisprudence that lawmakers write a law and those words have meaning. And the meaning is not defined by what the lawmakers intended them to mean because the intention of the law is expressed in the words, not in their minds. And what really matters is what did the words mean when they were drafted. This is a concept called original public meaning, or what was the common meaning of the term when it was drafted. And so Gorsuch agrees with Alito that the meaning of the word sex does not encompass sexual orientation or gender identity. It just means, you know, your biological sex. A person is a male, XY chromosome, a female, two X chromosomes. I mean, they're So they both, Alito and Gorsuch, both agree that sex means sex, uh, not according, you know, in the traditional meaning. But then here's where Gorsuch goes on. He says, okay, let's take a sexual orientation discrimination case. A guy comes to a company picnic with another man as a date. A woman comes to a company picnic with a man as a date. Um, The employer sees the guy come with a man as a date and fires him. Well, wait a minute, Gorsuch says, 
they both brought a man as a date. What was the distinguishing characteristic? The distinguishing characteristic is one person was of the opposite sex and one person was of the same sex. The, the man and the woman engaged in the exact same conduct, but the man was not permitted to engage in that. So he was saying that that is discrimination on the basis of sex in addition to discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, to be sure, but the sex component is inseparable. Same with gender identity. If you have a, if you have a woman who is dressed in a particular way and you have a man who's a, a trans woman who dresses in a particular way, a biological male who is identifies as a trans woman who dresses identically to the woman, how you're treating those two different those two people differently because of their sex, in addition to the gender identity. And so um, Alito objected to that, and he said, no, 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 wait. If, a, if an employer passes uh, has a policy that says we will not hire any transgender employees or we will not hire any gay employees, that's not sex-based because that's solely sexual orientation or gender identity-based. And Gorsuch would retort and say, well, wait a minute, but in every concrete application of that policy, sex would be involved. Does this, is this making anyone's head hurt <laughs> walking <laughs> through this right now? But that's, that's the argument. That, that's the yeah. back and forth. Now, you made the point in your newsletter that I thought was, was fascinating, that this case, uh, as much as it's celebrated by supporters of the transgender movement, actually disagrees with one of the central claims uh, of, of transgender gender ideology, which is that uh, gender and sex are different. And, and this case is saying, no, uh, a man is a man and a woman is a woman, and that's defined biologically. That's, that's really yes. at the crux of the, of the argument here. Yeah, it absolutely is. So what, what um, Gorsuch did is he said, no, wait, you know, sex means biology, it, period. And uh, you've, you know, I'm sure people who followed this debate closely have seen uh, tweets and comments like a trans woman is a woman that attempt to sort of obliterate the difference between sex and gender identity. That uh, if you even draw the distinction between sex and gender identity in some quarters, that's seen as transphobic. Uh, but what the this de decision depends on as a conceptual matter, a distinction between sex and gender identity, that when the law says sex, it means a, a biological fact. And so that was an interesting aspect of the decision that a lot of people have kind of glossed over that isn't necessarily all that relevant legally as to how courts will view this, but it is does have some philosophical relevance to the cultural debate. Now, put aside for a minute religious institutions and missions and churches and so forth, just in terms of general secular society, what difference will this decision make? in terms of the way that most people live? Well, that's a really good question. For most people, it's not going to make much of a difference at all. And, and here's why. Huge, a lot of states had already adopted uh, state laws and, and local law, city laws that prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. So their employers had already been operating on that basis. A large number of secular employers had already adopted voluntarily policies or practices that prohibited discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. So if you're somebody who's working, say, for an insurance company in, in Alabama, the odds are that your company had already uh, either, even though Alabama, I don't believe, has a sexual orientation or gender identity non-discrimination law, had already adopted as a policy this kind of, uh, you know, had, had adopted this prohibition as its own policy. 
So for an awful lot of people, they won't notice anything really different. In fact, I had a conservative pundit who sent me a message after the decision was reached. And he said, wait a minute, I thought this was already unlawful. Um, and that's how much sort of the state and local and company policy, uh, you know, the company policies had permeated throughout American society, state and local laws and company policies had permeated to where I don't know that there's very many people at all who work for a corporation or a company that actively engages in employment discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Yeah. Now, the first thing that happened uh, when the decision was handed down is I started getting text messages and, and so forth from pastors and church leaders saying, wait a minute, it, does this apply to churches? And I would say no, This explain the, the distinction there. But what difference does this make for once you look at, at parachurch uh, realities, such as Christian colleges and universities and missions organizations and so forth? What, what difference does this decision make for them? Well, that's a great question. And I've been getting flooded with messages like that as well. And the best single answer I can give them is stay tuned. Because in theory, uh, if all you have right now is this legislation, there is a strong argument that prohibitions against sexual orientation discrimination or gender identity discrimination may well attach to, say, for example, Christian schools. But press pause button on that. Uh, not only are there still First Amendment protections of free exercise, and not only is there still a federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act that Justice Gorsuch in his own um, opinion said acts as a kind of super statute. And not only does Title VII have some protections in its plain text for religious institutions, there are a series of cases that are about to come out of the Supreme Court that could really solidify this. And one of the key ones is a, a, a case called Our Lady of Guadalupe that is going to determine the extent of what's called the ministerial exception to non-discrimination laws. This is where when a, a, a church or a parachurch entity um, has a minister, um, and the, the definition of a minister is what's up for grabs here in this case. And if the case goes the way that I believe it likely will, what you're gonna see is that parachurch organizations and churches are going to have a very large carve out from all non-discrimination laws entirely for uh, employees who functionally perform Minister, they perform ministerial functions. And so that would include teachers. Uh, that would, could in, would include likely counselors. That would include leaders of Christian institutions and organizations. And this isn't just a, an exception from sexual orientation and gender identity laws. This is an exception from all, all non-discrimination laws. So that could be expanded. There is also a case that's going to be decided next term called Fulton versus City of Philadelphia where what's at issue is whether or not Catholic, a Catholic charity can be forced to, for example, place foster children or adopted children with same-sex couples. The Supreme Court has taken that case, and it's going to go a long way towards defining the, the scope of the free exercise clause. And so, and I could go on, there's other cases as well, but we won't literally, we won't know, I say, the full extent of the religious liberty impact until maybe even a year from now. And there is a very good chance that where we end up is that secular organizations are going to have to uh, offer much more robust protections for LGBT Americans and religious institutions are going to enjoy much more robust exemptions from those same non-discrimination provisions. That is likely, though not certain, 
where we'll end up, and which is why I've said to many people to understand the full impact of the of Supreme Court jurisprudence on religious liberty. We have to wait, and and we'll actually probably even know a lot more within a month because the Supreme Court's going to hand down three decisions this term that are going to provide us some real insight as to their religious liberty jurisprudence. You know, there's been a move toward uh, what's called the Equality Act, passed the House, uh, not not in the Senate, uh, but uh, that would legislatively add sexual orientation, gender identity to the Civil Rights Act. Does this decision make that more or less likely, do you think? Because I, I could see the argument either way which is to say, well, the court has already ruled here, let's codify it, would be an argument that somebody might make, or somebody might who, who is supportive of the general idea might say, well, we don't yeah. get it. I think uh, if push comes to shove, I'm going to say less likely, and I'm going to say less likely because of a combination of the ruling, the Title VII ruling and the religious liberty rulings that are incoming. Um, these cases together may settle a large degree of the dispute uh, and the conflict between gay rights and religious liberty. And one of the things about the Equality Act, the operative provisions regarding gender identity and sexual orientation were largely taken care of by the Gorsuch opinion. But it also has this provision, at least some versions of it, that limit religious liberty protections available in defense to a, a lawsuit or state action on the basis of uh, these the expanded non-discrimination laws. And if the Supreme Court solidifies religious liberty protections independently of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that's going to kind of gut that portion of the Equality Act. So you, you could end up with a series of judicial decisions that kind of moot out all the aspects of the Equality Act. Um, and so, again, that's why one of the things you have to say here is stay tuned. I mean, There are a lot of potential issues for religious liberty regarding this decision. There are also a lot of potential solutions to the religious liberty issues raised that the Supreme Court's gonna be providing maybe or maybe not in the coming weeks and months. And so there's just, we're we're kind of in this fog fog right now where we we don't know where the law is gonna end up, which is very frustrating and it's very alarming for a lot of people. But fortunately, a lot of this will be resolved in the next month or two. You know, there's been sort of an intramural debate uh, that's gone on for a long time. A lot of people that I work with all the time and think really highly of, uh, we have a disagreement about, not about the end goal, but about what what's the best way to get there. And so a lot of people uh, will say, and have been saying, what we should do is sort of take the Utah compromise, as it, as it was called in, in Utah, and, and do that nationally, which would be uh, to say, let's add sexual orientation, gender identity to the Civil Rights Act, and let's have a carve out. So each side is is giving up a little bit. I, I oppose that direction and have all sorts of reasons why I opposed and oppose it. But there are people who, who said over the last several days, and legitimately, I get their point, don't you wish you had? Doesn't it look now like that was the right way to go? I don't think so, but am I wrong? Uh, you know, I honestly think that, again, we're speculating here. Uh, it's not rank spe- speculation. It's informed speculation based on judicial philosophies, precedents, oral argument transcripts. I think that kind of what we're headed towards is like it or not, both sides are going to get the Supreme Court sort of handing them the Utah compromise. 
So there were a lot of people on the left who really did not like that Utah compromise. It was the kind of thing that it seemed to make not very many people happy. <laughs> um, there were a lot of people on the left who said the Utah compromise is absolutely a no-go. Um, and a lot of people on the right who said the Utah compromise is a no-go. And when the fairness for all legislation, which is kind of roughly based on that notion, was introduced, it did not have very much support in Congress uh, at all from, from either side. And it feels to me, and this is something that I wrote and I've tweeted, it looks like the, the Supreme Court is going to end up saying, well, here it is. And, uh, and, and that Utah compromises, as we've said broadly, uh, more protections for LGBTQ Americans in the secular workplace, greater enhanced protections for religious liberty and religious institutions. And that seems to be where we're going to head. And as soon as this case law, the religious liberty case law starts to come out, which I expect it will again in the next you know, couple of weeks, you're going to see all of the folks who are praising Neil Gorsuch to the heavens this week on Twitter flip around and all the people who are attacking Neil Gorsuch as a failed justice flip around and start praising him. Yeah. I do have one last question, um, which is, and again, this is speculation, but as you say, informed speculation. And since you got it right on, uh, on this case, uh, a long time ago, I want to ask you, there is an abortion case. It's a pretty significant abortion case before the court right now. What what do you think is going to happen there? I'm very pessimistic, uh, to be honest. I think the best case scenario, the reasonable best case scenario for pro-life Americans, and I've been a pro-life uh, attorney and activist my entire adult life, the best case scenario is that the Supreme Court upholds a Louisiana statute that requires that uh, physicians who perform abortions have admitting privileges at a, at a relatively nearby hospital on the basis that that Louisiana law does not constitute an undue burden on abortion, abortion rights. In other words, I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to, uh, even under a best case scenario, upset or change or altered the fundamental abortion jurisprudence that was laid down in 1992 with Planned Parenthood versus Casey. If you read the oral argument, and again, this is this is speculation, informed speculation, but speculation. The argument seemed to center not around overturning prior precedent that is uh, supports abortion rights, but wondering if the New Jersey, the uh, Louisiana law fits within prior precedent that supports abortion rights. I did not see a hint in oral argument that five justices were considering overturning some of the favorable abortion rights precedent. And if that's the case, uh, I sh surely we'd be happy to see the Louisiana law upheld, but to have a law upheld on the basis that it doesn't really make much difference for abortion, uh, you know, access to abortion is kind of one of the very definitions of a hollow victory. Um, well, would it be the case if that is the outcome and if that is the the argument followed, would that essentially be a reaffirmation of Casey? It depends on the language. Not every application of Casey is a reaffirmation of Casey because Casey wasn't challenged here. In other words, Louisiana didn't go in and, and you know, they're, they're, they want to win their case, right? They're not sitting there and they're thinking – uh, if we challenge Casey, we'll have less of a chance of winning our case. So they're going to try to fit their case within Casey. That's the way this legal argument works. 
Um, but it depends on the language, but we could very well potentially see what is functionally a reaffirmation of Casey. And, but I'll give you the one thing, the one thing to look for, for optimism of a fundamental alteration in um, abortion jurisprudence. If the court overturns a case called Whole Women's Health, um, that was the Texas law, that was the case challenging the Texas admitting privileges law that was decided 5-3 uh, in, uh, in favor of the abortion clinics overturning the Texas ad, uh, admitting privileges law. That's a recent case, I mean, I believe 2015 or 2016. If that case is reversed by the, the current Supreme Court, that will signal, even if they're still applying a Casey analysis, even if they're sort of you know, paying lip service to Casey, that they're looking to uh, expand the, they're giving a greater permission structure to pro-life uh, legislation in a very concrete way. And so look for that. If whole women's health is overruled, pro-life activists can say, wow, we have made some pro real progress. If it is not overruled, if this case is just uh, tries to slide and, and ruled in favor of Louisiana on a very, very, very narrow grounds, pro-life activists will once again look to the Supreme Court and say, that their efforts have have been rebuffed and sent to say. Fascinating. David French, senior editor at The Dispatch. Always good. To, I could talk to you all day long about this and a thousand other topics. And I really, really am grateful for your taking the time to do this, David. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts.